Good morning, Davenport, Iowa. How you guys doing today? My name is Leonard Jones, and let me be the first to welcome you to the Black Conscience Podcast. I hope you guys are staying safe and healthy during these unruly times. To give you a little synopsis, the Black Conscious is a 30-minute podcast that features a discussion between me and an expert on a certain topic pertaining to black history or culture. This week, we'll be discussing the criminal justice system, and today I have with me Grant Tejan from the Criminal Justice Department. During these talks, I'll be asking the expert boundary-pushing questions in order to reach a new level of understanding through conversation. The purpose of this podcast is to educate the St. Ambrose community on African-American history and bring light to the many tragedies African-Americans still deal with every day due to the pressure system set up against us. This is in hopes of developing a conscious way of thinking while also informing the community on a tremendous amount of untold history. This is an opportunity for us to move forward through education, conversation, and communication. But enough of me talking, now I'll have our guests introduce themselves. Well, hello, uh, and thanks for having me on the, uh, is this the inaugural podcast, Leonard? Well, that's, yes. that's fantastic. I'm very honored. Uh, my name's uh, Grant Tejan. I'm, I'm an associate professor at uh, St. Ambrose University in the Department of uh, Criminal Justice. Uh, I'm a criminologist by trade. Uh, I was trained as a sociologist, and I've been here at St. Ambrose for, I think this is my seventh year now. So thanks for having me on the show. No, I really appreciate you coming out today. Um, to get this going to roll and everything, I'll ask the first question. So we'll begin with the United States currently has a prison population of over 2 million people. What is your personal opinion on the incarceration rate in the U.S.? Well, thanks, sir. That's a great question and uh, a great way to start the conversation. Uh, my uh, personal opinion is it's exceptionally high. Uh, we have the number one highest uh, prison population on earth. Uh, we have had for a couple, well, close to a couple decades, if not a couple decades now. Um, and uh, it's also exceptionally racially disproportionate with uh, blacks making up 12% of the U.S. population, but making up 33% of the American prison population. So um, that is, you know, a uh, issue that has been making headlines and, and being a discussion of lots of research over the course of several years now. Um, uh, one positive note is there has been somewhat of a decrease in the uh, proportion of African-American people uh, incarcerated uh, since about 2006. Um, their population in prison has decreased by about 33%, give or take. Um, that's a positive development, but there is a massive amount of work to do, and there's still vastly uh, greater disproportionate presence in, in prisons in the United States and jails than uh, other other populations. So they'll go to my next question. Um, I'll ask, how do you compare our justice system to other countries with low incarceration rates? Great question. <laughs> and uh, that I, that's a answer that I, I've you know talked about in a lot of my classes. Um, more punishment centered. That's the United States, right? We're more uh, more of a tough on crime idea and less focus on rehabilitation. And we have reaped the rewards of that in, in the most negative possible way in regards to uh, prisons over you know overcrowding, filling up with people, uh, and also the. Uh, 
uh, what would you call it, Dis destroyed life chances of the people that go through the system who come out without, you know, rehabilitation, come out without uh, any way to support themselves, without job training. Um, they are experience uh, mental health issues and, you know, social deterioration while incarcerated. There's research shows that incarceration is linked to uh, creating or, uh, mental health problems or worsening health problems. Also, uh, the United States, uh, compared to other countries, we have less reliance on evidence-based best practices. We don't follow the advice of research or listen to scientists uh, you know, that are talking about criminal justice and criminological issues. We tend to go with publicly popular and politically driven policies and practices you know, that politicians like to sell and uh, to get votes. And often they don't work, and that then leads to you know, uh, social you know, deterioration uh, just, you know, or impacting, negatively impacting or impressing entire communities of people, especially looking at uh, black communities around the United States. No, I definitely agree. So I will ask, do you believe that the government needs to work on, like you, you mentioned it a little bit, um, rehab programs for inmates? Absolutely. And so work on, find a way to make sure they do not return back to the system. I know, um, I do not know the country off the top of my head, but I believe it could have been Sweden or Switzerland where the, their inmates get to go home for the weekend. And it's in a sense, they, um, it's not necessarily punishment, but it's kind of like, like you said, like a rehab facility where they come there, stay there during the week get better in a sense and learn different things like different traits and then get to go home and be with their family then come back mm -hmm. yep uh, that's th those are some uh programs that exist in scandinavian countries uh norway is one where i know that they they give weekend furloughs to uh, m many of their inmates to, to go home and visit families uh, their prisons look a lot different than ours uh, the environment is more how do i say it welcoming it's still a prison you, you never forget that but uh, i've been to sweden to, and visited their prison system as far as the rehabilitative part of it which is their focus and um, they have you know facilities that have programs they're focused on mental health and drug treatment uh, they're focused on job training um, and uh, they also have more what would you call it open like uh, furlough or like is it you know furloughs and you know they, they allow you know the inmates to you know have more freedom of movement uh, there's still problems there, of course, but they're definitely vastly more focused on, on rehabilitation. And it de demonstrates it in, in there. The results are demonstrated in the fact that they have lower rates of incarceration, lower rates of crime, and far higher rates of, uh, or lower rates of recidivism, where people that get out of prison don't go back to prison. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the United States, that's a massive problem. And it's not what well, I'm saying that the people that are incarcerated are, are negative or bad people that just it's like some kind of negative trait of theirs. It's the system that sets them up to fail and then they yes. go home and they have no options and, and then they are you know left with very few you know things that they can try to you know uh, use to support themselves or to uh, uh, improve their lives, I guess. No, I definitely understand, especially, um, of course, we're going to come and we're going to talk about this further in the podcast, but sure. the, the word felony and what's oh. the true meaning behind that. Yeah, absolutely. But my next question will be, so in an article posted by NBC News in 2015, they reported in 2014, private correctional facilities were a $4.8 billion industry. Do you believe the investment of public private and public prisons has been prioritized by the government over the human rights of certain people? In a word, yes. Uh, the big word here is profit. And uh, on my little note sheet, I have that in capital letters, right? Um, justice shouldn't be administered by private and corporate businesses, right? It's a massive conflict of interest. Yes. 
these private prisons go to Washington, D.C. And, and various legislators around the country and lobby and, and spend money on contributing to political campaigns. They have a vested interest in seeing prisons full of people and ha passing laws that put more people in prison and keep them there longer, tough on crime policies. All these practices and policies have been demonstrated to not work well and to actually contribute to more problems with criminal justice issues and crime in the United States instead of fixing the issue. So I know I was looking at, um, I believe it was prisonpolicy.org, mm -hmm. and it was speaking yeah. about how technically there are, I believe, less than 9% privately owned prisons. Mm -hmm. But I'll ask you in this um, my own personal question. So is it do the government still somehow receive some type of um, profit from public prisons, even though it, since it's not private? So like state-funded prisons and things like that? They receive revenue from it, which we can go into in some of the next questions I know you're, that we're going we're to talk about too, but good question. Yeah, um, it, it can be a revenue generator if they have certain industries in those prisons. For example, like Unicor in the federal prison system uh, is used as a prison industry. I think it was actually started, I want to say, by uh, maybe John F. Kennedy even. But it was used as a way to support and provide revenue so it could make them self-sustaining which is a, a, a different process than, than profit, which is what the private prisons are doing, right? Where they're just making profit, right? Mm -hmm. um, and 9%, you know, that's, uh, you know, maybe not a majority of prisoners, but in the United States prison system, that's, you know, 2.2 uh, million people is what we have right now. So you're looking at close to 10%, which is like 200 and some thousand. That's a lot of inmates in a private prison generating profit, right? Yeah. It is. But... But yeah, now some of those prisons back, you go back to the uh, Southern, uh, you know, post-Civil War days mm -hmm. uh, and with uh, convict leasing, there was some profit being made there. Uh, some of it was uh, probably skirting on the grounds of legality and, you know, e ethics, you know, as far as how, you know, how those prisons were operating to generate revenue. But some of it was maybe generated to, you know, create profit for the South's uh, depressed economy after the Civil War, too. But. So you kind of touched on that. Oh, yeah. um, so <laughs> my next question will be, due to the economic suffering, suffrage the South faced after the Civil War, yeah. do you believe that the that's when the South moved towards more of the industrialization of prisons? And also to add on top of that, um, with the passing of the 13th Amendment, also do you believe that was, in a sense, used as an oppression tool against African Americans, especially due to its, of course, unique wording? Yeah, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, passed in 1865, uh, the last year of the Civil War, right, the 13th Amendment. Um, uh, the southern states were quick to jump on it and take advantage of it, right? And take advantage they did. They passed the Black Codes, those laws that were uh, of, you know, how do I say this? If they could have been any more obvious in targeting Af black people, then I don't know how it would have been possible. But uh, the laws, uh, and I, I wrote some of these mm -hmm. down here in my notes, such as, I think, walking at night yeah. and uh, walking without purpose, um, for example. Well, if walking without purpose is a crime, then then I'm in big trouble because I, I'm known to walk around without any purpose. But but uh, not to make light of this situation, no, which I, it, I it, it, it uh, you know, was caused the horror and suffering to the horror and suffering of, of a lot of black people. Uh, it, this uh, they filled with black men, right? Uh, mm -hmm. They that southern prisons did post Civil War to the point where, at one point, about 1870, 1890, uh, about 95 of people in southern prisons were black men, right? So, and they were mostly white before the Civil War, right? 
to the point where the conditions uh, in these uh, convict leasing situations, uh, you can read a book called American Prison by uh, Shane Bauer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Michelle Alexander talks about it in uh, The New Jim Crow, uh, African-American uh, pro scholar, professor. Uh, and uh, you can also talk, uh, uh, Angela Davis talks about it in her book, wow. Our Prisons Obsolete, right? Um, uh, you know, another uh, hardcore, you know, uh, African-American scholar. Um, and yeah, where the conditions on these these convict leasing, uh, you know, situations were worse than slavery, literally. I mean, your chances of dying, they've done research on this, showed that it was actually higher. They would work people to death because they felt they were expendable and they didn't care. Now, with sl slaves, and this is horrific, and, but they thought they had more value, uh, you know, so they would actually treat them nicer, give them medical care to keep them from uh, murdering them, killing them. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 because of they, they thought they had value in the property. Now with the convict leasing, uh, if some die, we don't care. We'll get some more. We'll lock them up. We're continually doing it. So these created a uh, one of the most oppressive systems uh, known to you know the United States, much less the prison system. So that will roll into my next question. I would say, due to the 13th Amendment loophole that was exploited immediately after the Civil War and the arresting of black people in large numbers, could one say that the narrative that all black people are criminals or participate in criminal act was created by this new criminal justice system since many were arrested during that time of petty crimes and then also after they were arrested, um, media exploited it and like, of course, um, does what media does mm -hmm. and um, basically mm -hmm. create also helped create the narrative on top of that. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, I mean, that's a that is a discussion point that has been brought up in a lot of literature. Uh, reference the people I just brought up. Mm -hmm. You know, previously, uh, New Jim Crow, uh, our prisons obsolete, um, and uh, uh, lar large amounts of other research that's come out. Uh, Shane Bauer's book, American Prisons, too. Um, uh, yes, it, it that started the narrative, right? Uh, yeah, locking uh, massive amounts of African American men. Generally, it was more likely to be men at that point in time locked up in, in prison. It still is, but mm -hmm. there's still there's an explosion of of women in prison now too. But uh, yes, then that began, you know, that began the association, the stereotype that you know uh, African American people are are criminal. It criminalized them. It created, uh, you know, uh, this criminal narrative uh, that was attached, you know, to you know the the black body to the, you know and. That was, of course, it was, you know, uh, sensationalized. It was reported in the media. It, everybody saw, you know, these poor, you know, inmates and prisoners, uh, you know, locked up, you know, and thought associated it with a racial concept, right? And of course, uh, then they, all the ideas came out about, you know, race and genetics and so on, of course, which have all been disproven or, you know, deconstructed. Mm -hmm. But you know, but, you know, that ad just added fuel to that fire, to the, you know, the eugenics movement, you know, to um, those, those sorts of ideas. Um, so, y yes, uh, that created a, a powerful argument for Southern racists yes. that, you know, that yeah, African-American people were crime prone uh, and that continued. That's not gone. That's yes. carried on to today. Yes. So. That plan today, and this goes back to the word felon that I mentioned earlier. So I ask you, what does the word felon mean to you, and what do you believe is the true meaning behind that word? Yes, uh, the word felon. Felon. Uh, interesting. I'm writing a, some research uh, on words in criminal mm -hmm. justice right now. Words have a lot of impact. People mm -hmm. think, oh, it's just a word. 
words can keep people alive and words can kill people and yes. words can harm people, right? Uh, that's the power they have. Uh, Felon uh, is, you know, this dictionary definition of a person convicted of a felony offense. And it's used in, you know, these legal terms, these institutional terms, right? Institutional terms created by the criminal justice institutions. But uh, supposedly their argument is, you know, it's, it's this neutral term, but it's not. These yes. terms have high impact meaning. They're used as stereotypes and labels de to dehumanize people. And that's what I see it as, a dehumanizing label, right? Uh, you're seen as a monster. You're seen as a danger. Uh, you are used as an excuse to take away your rights, like collateral consequences yes. of, of a felony conviction or incarceration or both, you know? And that creates all kinds of difficulties for trying to improve your life after you've been incarcerated, trying to get a job, trying to find a place to live, trying to support your family trying to get access to much needed resources to help you uh, get back on your feet and help support yourself. Um, and not to mention just the, you know, the dehumanize the component of it that, yeah, the, the stereotyping, the stigmatizing, it has connections to, you know, in the United States, to race, to socioeconomic class, uh, you know, often poor and historically oppressed, you know, people of color are attached to this word too in many ways. So it's a high impact uh, term that functions in a very stigmatizing way to, to de disenfranchise uh, black people for, and uh, you know, people that are also you know, like other historically oppressed groups too, right? Yes. Um, in many different ways. Uh, Native Americans also uh, you know, are also heavily in, impacted by this too. Um, so just to give you some examples of you know, multiple groups that are, hit, that are hit hard by it. No, I definitely understand. And I know one thing while growing up that I was always told was to try to avoid the label felon because yeah. once you get labeled a felon, you, in a sense, lose all your human rights. Um, one of the main things I'll, um, that most people know, too, I believe, is you won't be able to vote. Yeah. And so um, I don't think people, in a sense, realize how important voting is. But at one point, um, there were so many obstacles for black people to be able to vote if we go back into the um late eight um 1800s mm -hmm. where they would do the literacy test mm -hmm. where or they would do um well in order to um if you're african american in order to vote your great grandfather had to been registered and have voted but if you're an ex-slave then of course your great grandfather didn't have a chance to vote right or you had to pay a certain amount of outrageous fee that of course you couldn't afford Exactly. Or, of course, with, I mentioned literacy test, and that would be the last one, but then the literacy test would be in a whole different language. Right. So it's like things like that. But um, Absolutely. going off of different policies and practices that were put into place to prevent black people, um, one thing I wanted to speak about was the three-strike policy created mm -hmm. by Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. which was determined to be one of the primary reasons behind the overpopulation of prisons so I'll ask you, do you believe that the combination of this new law that was passed in the 90s and the combination of the stop and frisk law, which was used by a lot of police departments during the time, was used against African-Americans, but also Latino-Americans in the 90s, if that makes sense? Good question. Good question. Yeah, the 90s and 80s were an interesting time and a strange time. Why? Is because both the left and the right, Republicans and Dem Democrats, however you'd like to frame them, uh, were both deciding to be tough on crime. They figured out that you couldn't get elected into political office without being really hard on crime. So wow. the people you thought of as progressives or liberals were, were lining up as fast as they could to pass the toughest crime laws they could. And that included, you know, Bill Clinton, who mm -hmm. later said that was a mistake. I mean, he admitted it publicly. I sh we, we shouldn't have done that. We didn't see the consequences of what happened and it didn't work well. Um, 
and you know, along with all the other tough on crime laws that were passed, um, which were many. Um, yes, you had the tough on uh, three strikes laws, mandatory minimums. You had the 100 to 1 uh, uh, crack to powder cocaine laws where you got a 100 yeah. times harsher yeah. sentence for this five grams of powder crack cocaine versus, uh, what was it, uh, uh, 100 grams of... Uh, of powder cocaine. I guess I, I said that wrong. Mm -hmm. You could get the same long mandatory minimum sentence for five grams of powder cocaine and ver versus the same amount of 100 grams of powder cocaine. This was racialized. Yeah. Different groups were, yes. you know, were dealing with these drugs, being arrested and for these distribution of these drugs, right? Yeah, so, yes, it had a, a, a negative impact that often heavily impacted uh, uh, black communities around the United States. Even though white communities were selling and doing these drugs, uh, you know, heavily uh their usage rates were similar to that you know uh, of any other group mm -hmm. if not far you know exceeding them um for example um so the so yes that had a, a racialized impact um truth and sentencing laws uh where you eliminated uh good time and parole making people do long prison sentences that had a racial impact longer sentences for all crimes in general that also you know filling up prisons keeping people there which you know same impact and more life sentences overall and less parole. Yeah, so, 80s and 90s, and you know they continue. They stacked up prisons full of people, and this had a disproportionate impact based on the social construction of race in the United States. Right. So, so I'll ask next question. Yeah. Do you believe police quotas also play the part in it? Interesting question. Yeah, and some research I brought in to, mm -hmm. to answer that question. Um, there's a study in the Journal of African American Studies uh, that looks at even that black police officers are calling for the end of quota-based policing. Why? Is because off-duty they were being racially profiled. Uh, African American police officers, and and so this quote is from you know. Uh, talks about it's this article uh the experiences of black uh police officers who've been racially profiled an exploratory research note uh, mm -hmm. but it says first in their review of police officers who have been victims of racial profiling by their fellow officers they often note that they worked in an environment that actively promotes racial profiling and quota-based stop and search practices thus they call for an end to quota-based policing that either intentionally or unintentionally targets racial minorities in many police oh sorry I, th that was a partial sentence, but so, yeah. So even uh, black police officers are calling for an end to uh, quota-based policing, arguing wow. that it is, yeah, that it leads to racial profiling. So I will ask, how do you think we can, I guess, and this is a hard question for you to answer too, because yeah. everyone is looking to answer for this question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But how do you think we can cut the roots of this deeply planted oppression system? Yes. Uh, let's see. This is uh, oh, good question. I hear my notes. <laughs> so ending. Uh, this is a big one. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I agree. I'll do. I'll answer it the best I can. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, based on some research I, I've you know come in contact with and my, my own thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, rehabilitation over tough on crime laws. I think is going to be a powerful uh, action that we can take. Right. And that's not going to be an easy thing to do. That's going to take massive political inertia to create that kind of change, right? I wouldn't say it be, won't be done tomorrow or like that. Uh, another one, ab abolishment of prisons. I'm a prison abolitionist, and people's heads explode <laughs> when I say that sometimes. What? I mean, because they don't understand there's any reality in the criminal justice system yeah. besides prisons. But 
There is. And anything that was seemed impossible, Angela Davis talks about this in her book, you know, you know, before it became po you know, possible, you know, you know, seemed like it was a thing that could not be done. I mean, yes. it's how she said, you know, but it, until it was done, until it got done, you know, uh, you know, slavery seemed impossible to overcome until it was. Uh, uh, you know, Jim Crow laws seemed impossible to overcome until they were. I'm not saying there's not an impact mm -hmm. here still with racism. There is, as Michelle Alexander's new Jim Crow book talks about, mm -hmm. and which I, I would argue and agree with, uh, argue with or argue for mm -hmm. and, and agree with is what I'm trying to say, that it, that it does function that as a new Jim Crow. But uh, and a big one, I think, too, in class inequality in the United States. Right. Uh, my God, class inequality, economic inequality in the United States is racialized, right? Uh, it impacts people, historically oppressed uh, people of color uh, are heavily disproportionately impacted by economic inequality. Yeah, the top 1% have 39% of U.S. wealth, $3 trillion, you know, on track to have more money than the whole middle class combined. Or if not, there's just an article that came out mm -hmm. about that. 40% of Americans have negative wealth. The bottom 40% have negative 0.9% wealth, right? Because they're in debt. Uh, and the top 10% own, the stock market's a fake economy. It's not a real, <laughs> the top 10% of, Amer uh, of Americans own 92% of the stock market mm -hmm. right now. So they control the wealth they have, you know, the equalizing of wealth, of, you know, wealth inequality would have a powerful impact in addition to these other policies and practices. It's never just as simple as an economic solution, right? But, mm -hmm. but it would have a high impact. Fact, countries that have lower rates of social inequality mm -hmm. uh, have lower rates of crime. And that means like the top, it mean, there's still rich and poor. You can't, you know, but it's like the top have a little bit less and the bottom have a little bit more. Right. And those and the countries that have more rate, social inequality have higher rates of crime. If you look right. at a cross national comparison. So, uh, you know, and this is because people when you talk about inequality, people's heads explode. They say, oh, socialism, <laughs> communism. They 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 have they don't argue, arguably few even understand what those concepts mean. They've just seen them on a meme. But um, <laughs> they that's not what that process is. Right. Uh, if you look at like Scandinavian countries have some of the highest qualities of life in the world. Um, and they have, you know, uh, societies, cultures that that have lower levels of inequality and far lower rates of crime, and so on. So, just that that would be a very simple uh, answer to that that question that deserves probably a couple hours of time to talk about. But no, I, I, I think you answered it very well. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So the last question I have for you today is: mass incarceration is undeniably the current rule in the pressure system set up against African Americans and many others at the moment. But one day, of course, this pressure system shall fall as has the others in the past. Mm -hmm. Do you believe the seeds of the next oppression system is already planted and we're just not aware? So to give more um, example of that, um, like you um, previously mentioned, at first there was slavery, then there were black co codes, and then there was Jim Crow, mm -hmm. and then there was segregation, and now I believe there's like mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. So do you believe, like I said, like the, the next system is already there, but we just don't. So I believe the passing of the 13th Amendment I believe they knew what they were doing. I believe mm -hmm. they um, already had a plan set in motion or thought of a plan of how, in a sense, to make this more profitable and mm -hmm. get back the money that we lost from releasing these slaves, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And, yeah, that, that there is, you know, was there some purposeful motivation behind why they were, you know, passing these this legislation. 
Yeah, and a lot of scholars would agree. I think a lot of scholars that study like cr uh, critical race theory w mm -hmm. would agree with you too, right? Um, in regards to, yeah, that some of these actions were constructed purposefully to, to impact uh, black people to impact other, you know, historically oppressed, uh, you know, groups also. This is a good question. <laughs> I, I really like this when I read this. I was like, oh, yeah, this is this has got me thinking now. And so I tried to, you know, grapple mm -hmm. with this as best I could. Uh, and what I want to encourage people to do is go out there and also look at, at black scholars in criminology. Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing some fantastic, you know, awesome work. It's my... Uh, Jason M. Williams is, is a mm -hmm. pr professor that I'm, uh, you know, uh, uh, familiar with uh, and acquaintance with, uh, and he, he he just did a, a whole journal uh, or edition in the mm -hmm. Prison Journal, uh, looking at uh, uh, African American experiences in the criminal justice system, how. Uh, the black experience, you know, experience is racialized within the criminal justice system. And I, I'm not doing it justice in explaining the, the topic, mm -hmm. but it's a whole article and, and you know, gives a lot of focus to the, the work of a lot of critical work that black scholars are doing, which is leading the way in, in critical yes. criminal justice issues right now about issues of race in the criminal justice system. And that's who I go to to, mm -hmm. to find my information, to study, you know, to find out what I, I need to know about this issue. I ask them or I, I read their research and mm -hmm. I encourage everyone else to read black scholars quote black scholars in your research right um and looking at this yeah okay answering the question because i just I, I was trying to, to make a plea for people to please engage with you know and and work with you know study what black scholars are, are doing oh, in criminal justice um uh, Angela Davis yeah, talks about, you know, it seems impossible what I was already saying until, you know, the mass incarceration, you know, to be abolished, to be ended. But at one point, everything seemed impossible. So keep working towards it. It's a worthy goal. It doesn't mean open the doors and let everyone out. It means you can work within spaces of, you know, slowly abolishing certain components of it until it means widespread, widespread social change. Uh, now, as far as uh, are there the seeds of new oppression systems? A good question. I think things like online digital records where you can just look oh. up people's records that are located online. There's a lot of research out there yeah. about like digital footprints. You, you know, where it used to be you had oh, your wow. record, you know, it was recorded on paper somewhere and put in a file. Mm -hmm. Now it's out there on Google for everybody and it impacts different groups of people disproportionately. Right. Um, uh, so that's a powerful one, I think. Uh, and it's, you know, it's there. This is the new, you know, cyber age, digital age, right? Uh, facial uh, recognition software, which has been shown to be racially biased. You know, they haven't, uh, you know, and they're trying to say, oh, this is perfect. This is the new age of criminal justice. Ah, no, they ha the, the software doesn't function like it should. And it tends to criminalize and or indicate that people uh, of color are more likely to be considered uh, uh, crime prone or that re it misrecognizes them. It, it's, it, it has all kinds of problems here, you know, um, that could be a thing in yeah, the future. It sounds like a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like si stuff of science oh, fiction, wow. but it's yeah. that we're dealing with that stuff right now. Um, uh, I think some of the old systems are coming back mm -hmm. as far as like new systems currently mm -hmm. in America right <laughs> now. Uh, the old systems are coming back. The open overt racism, yeah. uh, for example, last week, uh, a black man, 44-year-old Michael Williams' body was found here in Grinnell, Iowa, an hour and a half away, burning in a ditch. See, and I heard, I heard nothing about it. Yep. Not one thing. This is my first time hearing about it's it. It's not. And my students did, too. I told them yesterday, and they couldn't believe it. And they're like, how do we not hear about it? It hasn't made many national headlines at all. It's made a few local headlines. I, I, I'm perplexed by that. Let's yeah. just say that. Um, uh, that's 
and this was in an area that some reports said had a lot of Confederate flags around it. Uh, his, he was still burning when people found it. This is horrific. I'm not making light of this. It's just a yes. handy-dandy example I can use. This is horrible. But this is these old systems are coming back. Yes. Um, you know, uh, openly discuss, you know, saying racist things in television and promoting it and 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 attacking people in the streets, these sorts of systems. Uh, you know, some of the lynching, this seems to be a type of a lynching. Uh, yes. uh, it, it would seem to look like that. It hasn't been verified to be that. I should be responsible in how I report things, yeah. but it certainly is looking sus suspicious. But also, I will say, I believe a lot of um, lynching still goes on and still happens. Of course, it all it's all about what the media reports to us. It's all about what's given, what information is given to us. Whoever controls the media controls the power. They controls the amount of information that gets to us and influences us. Mm -hmm. So, and if you have a media company who creates a certain narrative and only picks certain information to give out and makes you think this certain type of way, mm -hmm. then you should not blame, oh, well, so you shouldn't blame person, but you should also blame the things that's being taught to that person by this company or by mm -hmm. this service or media or whatever uh, so i definitely understand that. I, yes i i'm picking up what you're putting down with that and uh that that you know, is a problem you know looking at you know how information is being received you're getting two different streams of information or multiple streams let's say it yes. from media some's reliable and credible and you have to search it out and find it and be critically literate to do that some is some is not reliable and credible uh, and promotes propaganda and misinformation or lies. And or they report what they want and, and leave out the rest. You don't have to lie if you just don't report things that you don't want to talk about. And yes, <laughs> I do agree. I think there's been multiple incidents of lynching around the country that yes. have been misreported, underreported or completely ignored. Uh, because they don't want to, they don't want people to see that and become angry as they should or unhappy about it as they should and protest yes. as they should. Um, so I think not, not new systems planted. I think they're planting the seeds of some of the old systems uh, and trying to resuscitate those yes. evil old monsters, quite honestly. So yeah. that is a fantastic question, and it made me think about this. <laughs> thank so you. Thank you. Um, once again, I'd like to thank you, Grant, for joining the podcast today and your willingness to have this discussion with me. Absolutely. Um, it really, truly means a lot. And I believe with these continuous conversations, we are taking the small steps to combat ignorance and hate with positivity and education. Exactly. We are also beginning the development of conscious thinking through diversity and education that could one day help us understand the philosophy behind people's racial bias with thinking. Um, I would like to thank everyone who made this possible with a special thanks to St. Ambrose 88.5 and 106.1 FM KALA radio station, the St. Ambrose Coke John Foundation, and St. Ambrose Cabinet and Administration. I would like to also give one more special shout out to St. Ambrose Black Student Union, whose meetings are held on Wednesdays at 715 in the Rogowski Ballroom, room number seven. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you guys continue to stay safe and healthy, and we shall see you next time. Have a blessed day.